keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Everybody hates taxes. Everybody equally hates taxes, right? Well, not actually. No doubt you as a taxpayer appreciate the thanks you get from the super rich. What? You didn't hear from them? Well, the truth is you are paying taxes so the billionaire class doesn't have to. We are subsidizing them and they surely appreciate it. It's no secret that more than ever, America has become terribly like the country which our ancestors fought to free themselves from. Government of, by, and for only the very richest among us. Perhaps the most effective tool for maintaining that economic unfairness is our system of taxation. Of course, in America, there has never been, nor I feel confident in saying, will there ever be a government which has, as its goal, the enforced economic equalization of us all, through a system of taxation, that's not going to happen. But there are major differences in degree between a government of, by, and for the super rich and uh, what we make, you know, what other countries have. There should be something here. Uh, used to be called the vital center, where the government serves everybody. Not everybody is equal in terms of wealth, but the government should serve everybody. During the eight years of the presidency of that old lefty, Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower from 1953 to 1961, the top marginal tax rate was 91%. Actually, it was 92% the year he came into office. This is real. This is history. For the duration of Eisenhower's presidency, that rate affected a portion of the income of individuals making 200000 or more a year or couples making $400,000 or above per year. Now, in 2015 dollars, that was roughly $1.7 million for an individual, $3.4 for a couple. Bernie Sanders didn't even propose a, that high of a tax rate as what Eisenhower had. Yet as tax day 2018 came and went, a new tax sheriff is in town. And boy, has he made the aristocrats happy. On December 27, uh, 22, 2017, President Trump signed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I always loved their titles. Quite the Christmas gift paid for by the rest of us on tax day 2018. The orange one claims it created jobs, brought businesses back to the USA, and it's been a great stimulus, making America great again. Yes, the stock market, with a few notable bumps here and there, has soared. The jobless rate remains low. But is the economy really benefiting all Americans as it could and should? 
Specifically, how does the Trump law, tax law, affect Americans? Well, with us today is Josh Hoxie, who directs the Project and Opportunity and Taxation at the Institute of Policy Studies, and he's co-editor of Inequality.org. Josh Hoxie, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Hey, thanks for having me. Josh is also the co-author of several reports, including his most recent Billionaire Bonanza 2017, The Forbes 400, and The Rest of Us. Josh has written widely on economic equality in publications ranging from Fortune to the LA Times to the American Prospect. He worked previously as legislative aide for U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders. He lives and works in Boston, Massachusetts. Well, again, thanks for being with us. The Trump tax law, it's, it's confusing. Taxes are always confusing. But it has not actually gone into effect yet, has it? Well, folks are paying taxes today on earnings they made in 2017. So the 2017 earnings aren't uh, affected by the Trump tax cuts. They affect the 2018 earnings. So what folks are seeing is the amount taken out of their paycheck every week if they earn a paycheck and they have deductions on their taxes. That's already started to go into effect and you know, corporations that pay quarterly taxes and things like that, that's already getting into effect. But for folks paying taxes on tax day, they're paying taxes on their 2017 earnings, which is the last year's bill, last year's taxes. So then, yeah, if people are, I don't know if this can be answered succinctly, but if people are in the same basic tax situation when it comes to paying taxes for 2018, how will they, how will they be affected? How will the middle class, such as it is, uh, be affected uh, come next year? Yeah. So what, what we're seeing is folks, um, you know, whose taxes coming out of their paycheck each week has gone down. Uh, they haven't actually noticed. <laughs> poll after poll shows, you know, how do you feel about the Trump tax cuts? And they say, you know, what tax cut? And you know, one uh, particularly. Uh, egregious example of, of this came from Paul Ryan, soon-to-be-retired Congressman Paul Ryan, Yay. who uh, lifted up a secretary in Pennsylvania um, to show that her take-home pay went up a dollar fifty a week as a result of the Trump tax cuts. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, a whole buck fifty. He actually what, held... What great prosperity is being shared across America. This this woman gets an extra buck fifty. Um... And, and, you know, that is indicative of, of what a lot of people are, are noticing. It's that, you know, sure, okay, you know, if you're in the middle, you know, 50% of the country, you know, maybe you're seeing your, your weekly uh, take-home pay tick up a little bit, but it's such a small amount that it's not really affecting your life. And, you know, by contrast, you know, I ran the math on, on what it would look like for the Koch brothers to see their take-home pay, yeah. and they're going to see an increase in their weekly pay by twenty-seven million dollars a week. What? So wait, wait, that's what did, we're talking about? What twenty-seven million dollars a week per week? Per week, yeah, one point four billion dollars is what is what's projected from them. So, I mean, what this basically comes down to is a massive subsidy for the folks who need the money the least, the, the ultra wealthy. And a little bit of chump change for everyone else, and, and that's not to say it won't go up. I mean, folks at the at the middle of the economic spectrum mm-hmm. will see a little bit of money come from this tax cut. You know, it may be as much as a couple thousand dollars once it's fully into effect, which is you know an important amount of money for folks who are living paycheck to paycheck. Don't get me wrong, yeah. 
However, by comparison to $27 million a week, it's really a slap in the face. Wow, that, that, that is so hard to compute. That's, that's amazing. And their money comes from various different investments, including paper products and uh, I forget what else. Is it uh, petroleum things? The Koch Brothers Industries, yeah. It's mostly pipelines, uh, oh. products, like you said. They make you know, their money off uh, turning old-growth forests into paper towels and toilet paper <laughs> and taking carbon and sending it down to the Gulf to contribute to climate change. So that's that's who we're talking about getting huge subsidies. And it's not just them. I mean, across yeah. the board, the wealthiest individuals and most profitable corporations have seen the most benefit, and they did the most lobbying. I mean, this is straight... To call it corruption is really doesn't quite capture what happened here over the past year with, with Trump in office. Wow. Now, in terms of tax cuts, there is the richest 1%, which I, I still think is a little bit, uh, you know, it's not really clear because there's really one-tenth of 1% that is just totally off the charts, that they get tremendous amounts of money. But I don't know if you can compare that fairly large grouping of the richest 1% as compared to the poorest 20%. Uh, let's get into some numbers there, how you can compare. So looking at the top 1%, you know, this, is, this was a moving number for how much they're going to benefit from the Trump tax plan. Um, on income taxes, you know, one of the things the plan did was drop the top income tax rate and raise the, the top exemption. So those are the very top used to be the top income tax rate was 39.6%. Right. Now it's 37%. Right. Um, so a, a fairly modest reduction uh, on income tax. But as you know, most wealthy people don't necessarily just pay income taxes. Uh, they have capital gains. They have you know, property values that, that go up, stock, so on and so forth. Um, and what it basically comes out to is the richest 1% just in the next year on average, are going to see about a $48,000 tax cut. Um, so the amount that they would pay on average among the richest 1%, they're going to see the, the drop by 48000 The poorest 20% of the country will see uh, a one-year tax cut of 120 bucks. Mm. Um, so 48000 on one side, 120 bucks on the other side. And in terms of, of numbers, aside from the dollars, how many people are in that 1%? I know I'm sure that's hard to figure. And how many people are in that lower 20%? That may be um, difficult to I compute. Mean, so, yeah, so there's, um, let me make sure you get this right. There's a, you know, this country has about 320 to 340 million people. Um, there's about 2.6 people per household. Um, so that's about 116 million households. So if you take you know, 1% of that, we're looking at uh, about a million households are in the richest 1%, a million families, uh -huh. um, so about 3 million people. Um, the poorest 20%, um, you know, we're talking about I see. just over, what's that, 25 million households. Um, so, I mean, it's it's uh, a lot of people <laughs> that we're talking about. You know, people yeah. think about the 1%, sure, it's 1% of the country, but there's there's a lot of people that, that fit into that. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, we're talking about is, is the folks at the, at the pinnacle, at the, at the absolute tip of the economic spectrum. It's right. not just, um, you know, the folks who are driving us. And the New York Times made the case uh, before the Trump tax cuts even went into effect that 
we really have two separate tax systems. We have the one that you and I and most of our listeners, I'm sure, pay into, in which the more you make, the more you pay. Right. Uh, and it's a progressive system that goes back, you know, over 100 years. And then there's this uh, sort of strange uh, thing that happens for the very wealthy where after you get up into the top 1%, and as you mentioned, the top 0.1% and 0.01%, you actually start to see this inversion where they pay less and less taxes it has to do with these massive carve-outs and loopholes yes. that exist exclusively mm. for the benefit of the very rich. So this has been a hallmark of the U.S. tax code before the Trump tax cuts and is existing after the Trump tax cuts go into effect. That, that's an interesting point. So I wonder how much change this really is. I mean, for a long time, as you say, Josh, uh, it's been weighted heavily toward the the wealthiest among us. How much of a change is this really? And what was the argument that, that the proponents gave as to why it was needed? Well, the biggest change, in my opinion, that comes from the Trump tax cuts is on the corporate side. And and what that did, which we can get into, is, is basically dramatically reduce the corporate income tax that's paid by the U.S.'s most profitable corporations. On the individual side, I mean, we saw a lot of things shift around. Um, basically, you know, we saw some exemptions change. We saw things happen with how uh, various, uh, you know, child tax credits and, and tax credits work in that way. But but what it basically came down to is that, you know, for a very sh- you know short amount of time, about I think it's six years, um, Low and moderate income people will pay slightly less in taxes, while the people will pay a lot less in taxes. And then those tax cuts actually go away. And the reason is because they're super expensive and they're not permanent, because that would just bust a hole so big in the deficit that it, it runs into something called um, PAYGO, pay-as-you-go, which is a law that was passed a number of years ago that said that you can't blow a hole this big in the deficit. Um, often Congress just overrules that. But um, that what they did to, to get around that was they made the individual tax cuts temporary, right. and then they made the corporate tax cuts permanent. So when history historians look back on this bill, what they're going to see is this huge hole where corporate tax rates used to be, and you know this little dip, temporary dip in personal income taxes. I mean, there's a potential that these become permanent in the next Congress, but. I mean, judging by what's going on with trends in Congress right now, hmm. I, I can't imagine that, you know, they end up passing a, a follow-up bill to this. I mean, they'd have to do it before Paul Ryan, you know, runs home to Wisconsin crying that he knows he's <laughs> going to lose his next election. So, I mean, I, I just don't see that happening. It certainly will be interesting. And, you know, as I, as we agree, you know, for a long time, it's been tilted that way. In case you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Josh Hoxie, who directs the Project on Opportunity and Taxation at the uh, wonderful Institute for Policy Studies. Check it out. They're a great group, do a lot of good public service work. We're talking about uh, Tax Day 2018. And, you know, of course, corporations are not people, but they are legal persons with rights and responsibility. The, the corporate tax rate, as you say, was reduced. What was it before and what is it now? And isn't it true that most corporations kind of found their way around the official tax rate of 35% anyway? 
Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the the corporate tax rate uh, pre Trump tax cuts right. was thirty five percent. Right. Post Trump's tax cuts was twenty one percent. Wow. That is um, so that is a massive cut by any measure. The effective corporate tax rate um, pre Trump tax cuts was about twenty four percent on average. So you know it's not that far off of what folks were paying. And the reason that that number is so low is because of the averages are brought down dramatically by uh, major corporations who pay nothing in taxes. And, and the way that works is that they get such massive subsidies that it offsets any taxes they would owe. And these are, you know, household names, Amazon, Dish Network, Molson Coors, MetLife, Prudential, all paid nothing in federal income taxes in 2017. Um, you know, companies have announced these one-time worker bonuses where right. they're going to... They're going to hand out a tiny chunk. And this has all been, and I wrote about this in Fortune, this has all been a, a, a basically a PR campaign mm -hmm. for these companies. I mean, only 4% of workers in this country are, are receiving these one-time bonuses, and they're usually around $1,000. Yeah. Um, Didn't... Uh, that, uh, I was go just, just going to ask, I think uh, the original John David Rockefeller was known for riding on a horse and actually handing out bags of dimes to the peasants below. <laughs> That's about what we're looking at. And put a number on it, you know, corporations received nine times more money in tax cuts than what they gave in bonuses. Um, nine to, and to make it even more stark, nine times more. It, it gets worse. They spent seven times more on stock buybacks than they did on worker bonuses or increased wages. Whoa. And a stock buyback for folks who don't, their money through through the tech, through uh, buying and selling corporate stocks is when businesses buy back their own stock to make the price go up so that their shareholders, which is oftentimes their senior management, um, who make their money through performance um, measurement, they they see their wages go up and the and the stock goes up. So stock buybacks exclusively benefit the wealthy. Almost nobody uh, in the bottom half of the country sees any in, impact of that whatsoever. Um, and we're seeing, again, 37 times more money from these corporations spent on stock buybacks than on increasing wages. Ah, so the uh, the little bonuses, you know, the, the, it was such great fanfare right after the passage of the Trump tax bill that uh, there were, you know, Republican speaker temporarily, Paul Ryan, said tax reform is working. And he mentioned Apple's decision to give a $2,500 stock grant to some Apple employees. Workers, he said, are coming home and telling their families they got a bonus or they got a raise or they got better benefits. What's the reality here? Is there any assurance that big corporations will share their tax cuts with employees? I mean, it's like trickle down. You know, that's been going on for a long time. And it's never, ever been true. And as the great philosopher uh, Rocky the Squirrel said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. Yet is the new tax law relying on the concept of trickle-down anyway? I mean, how, how can they continue to do this when it's shown again and again and again trickle-down doesn't work? Is this thing, do they use this as, as part of their selling point, trickle-down? Uh, yes. Um, the bad news is is that this old tired trick around trickle down uh, is still being used. The good news is, is that people aren't buying it. 
I mean, this this bill will go down, at, it went down at the time as the least popular major legislation ever passed by Congress while it was being passed. So wow. to say, regardless of what happens after the bill goes into effect, while it was being debated, it never got above 50% support. Um, that's basically unprecedented, um, especially for tax cuts. People often, as you mentioned, they don't like taxes. They think tax right. cuts are going to help them, so they right. support tax cuts, even right. though they tend to hurt most people in the long run. Um, I mean, so this is this is a, a zombie argument that, that just sticks around, that somehow making the rich richer is going to help everyone else. And what we're seeing is that people you know, for basically the past 30 years have said they want to see the rich pay more in taxes, not less. Mm -hmm. They want to see uh, more opportunity, more tax fairness. They want to see, you know, folks who are born into poverty able to be, you know, enter economic prosperity. They want to see things like this. Instead, what they're getting from this Congress is the opposite. They're getting massive handouts to the already wealthy, um, they haven't yet begun cutting major programs that people depend on. Hmm. Essentially, when you blow a $1.5 trillion hole in the federal budget, it's a matter of time before these folks come back saying we need to cut vital programs like you know, food stamps to pay for it. So that's, that's the trade-off that we're getting, but we're getting it in a bit of slow motion because of the the distractions happening in Congress right now. Distractions? What do, I'm only kidding. Uh, what, uh, but <laughs> is it possible... All right, let's say I'm not sure of this by a long shot, that the predictions are that this 2018 will be a good year for Democrats. I have my doubts seeing how we don't have a message yet. You know, being not Trump, I don't think we can count on that. But is it possible that they were clever enough to think, well, it won't really hurt the average uh, middle-income earner until the Democrats are back in power? that that's when they, they, it'll really hit them and, and people will say, wait a minute, I'm paying more taxes and the, the, the rich are paying far less and blame the Democrats. Was that, do you think, could I be that cynical that that was part of their strategy? Well, um, I actually don't think that was their strategy. Oh, good. I think, and they were very open about this, they were going to pass this tax bill, it was going to be super popular, and they immediately came out with Koch brothers and other folks saying they were going to spend $100 million on ads promoting the tax bill around the country and trying to hang this vote around the demo vulnerable Democrats' necks that they should have supported this bill and they didn't, and folks need to elect Republicans who will support this bill. These are true believers who think that you know cutting taxes for the rich really is a winning uh, electoral strategy. Mm. And... You know, they've been slapped in the face with a little bit of reality, as we've seen. You know, folks are not noticing the tax cuts. They're not excited about them. The most recent poll I, I saw still shows that most people do not support these tax cuts, even after they've gone into effect. Um, so, I mean, what, what we've seen is that essentially this, this massive PR campaign, which, by the way, I think was a coordinated effort between these businesses who were trying to hand out bonuses um, and these politicians who were trying to make, you know, political hay out of their out of their past bill. And I wrote about that for the American prospect that this is this is not a coincidence that the biggest profitable corporations as well as the Republican Party were both, you know, basically reading from the exact same script mm. for the past three months. Um, you know, it's it's essentially backfired. Paul Ryan, 
and I, I mean this sincerely, I think he quit because he knew he was going to lose. Yeah. I mean, he, he basically come out and said, came out and said that he was doing it for, to spend more time with his family. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that he would love to spend more time with his family, and he will. Part of the driving decision for Paul Ryan is that he passed his tax cuts, which was his dream since entering Congress, and he knows that the America, there's going to be a backlash to it because the American people are not with him. Uh, on this issue, so I don't know what's going to happen in November, but I do know if the if the vote was taken today, that you would not see a, a really good turnout for Republicans supporting tax cuts for the rich, because that's not a really wide widely held belief in the American public that this is a great thing. Yeah, it's interesting how some people insist that the polls show that the the public is Republican, is to the cent, is to the right of center. And and favors this stuff. It is simply not true. And if you ask people, you know, actual policy positions, clearly you're right, Josh. That uh, they people don't support giving our money to subsidize the wealthiest among us. I do find it fascinating that. Well, I know it's hard to believe that Trump might not be telling the truth from time to time. I know, shocking. But he insists that his law is already working, that jobs are coming back. He just said this recently, that jobs are coming back to the U.S. and are contributing to the economic growth because of his tax uh, law. What is the reality about this? I mean, one can say that, okay, some jobs are relocating in America what what is the reality? Is any of what he says it must have some? I mean, there's been a little bit of truth. There's definitely been an upward trend in uh, job creation in the United States and in um, you know reduced unemployment. So that's that's uh, and is that because of this? For sure. Is is it because of this? Or was it happening? Anyway? It's it's a big stretch to say that this is a result of the Trump tax cuts. And that's not, you know, me, uh, political analyst saying that. I mean, corporate CEOs have said repeatedly they will not increase hiring as a result of the tax cuts. Instead, and this is exactly what they did, they're going to use the cash for stock buybacks that's going to make their shareholders wealthier. That's part of their fiduciary responsibility. Um, There's just not that much of a of a incentive in the tax code to hire people with the money versus plowing it into profits. And they just, they just don't have to do it, and they don't. Um, and, you know, there was this really funny moment where the former uh, National Economic Advisor, uh, Gary Cohen, was in a meeting of Fortune 500 CEOs, and he asked, how many of you are going to increase uh, hiring when this tax code goes into effect? And like four or five people raised their hands, and they looked out into the room. Why aren't the rest of you raising their hands? And the answer was because they're not going to do it, because that's not what big profitable corporations do when they have more cash. Uh, what they do, I mean, it's a nice thought to think that these corporations would just do the right thing. I mean, if you want uh, increased jobs, don't give money to Amazon to increase jobs create a federal jobs guarantee. I mean, if you're going to spend money on employing people, employ people directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that would be a, you know, a solution to the problem. Instead, what we did was give an unprecedented sum of money to the most profitable corporations and then watch them use that cash to engage in, in stock buybacks and, and make their executives wealthy. I mean, we CEO pay. We're at a point right now where Wall Street bonuses, just their 
bonus pool, not including their regular salaries, just their bonus pool, is high enough to make every server in the country paid $15 an hour. I mean, that's just insane how much cash we're talking about in just the Wall Street bonus pool. And that's exactly who who's benefiting the most from these Trump tax cuts. Wow. Yeah, and it's I guess it's hard for people to get that. I mean, there's so many diversions, uh, other shiny things that we're looking at uh, that Trump is is working on. It's hard for people to pay attention to stuff. It is it is complicated. I mean, for everybody who's done their taxes, yikes, it is very complicated. So let's get into some of that. There are seven tax brackets under the Trump tax law. There are always different tax brackets. What, what are these seven tax brackets? Is this something new? And, and what are they now? Uh, yeah, so the tax brackets shifted uh, slightly. Um, they were uh, basically starting at 10% at the lowest uh, rate for uh, um, a married couple. That goes up to $19,000 and then uh, ranged up to 39.6% for those making over $480,000. What the rates essentially did was drop down a bit. Um, so it's still at 10% at the bottom, but instead of the next rate being 15%, it's 12%. So the next rate being 25, it's 22, from 28 to 24, and so on. And at the top, it went from 396 to 37%. And the dollar figures all inched up as well. So instead of needing $480,000 for a married couple to be in the top income bracket, you're at $600,000 in the top income bracket. So what does this really mean for people? This is where people are going to see a slight increase in their take-home pay in 2018, which maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, um, because your your, in, your uh, tax rate went down one or two percentiles, and you might have ended up on the edge of one of these um, new brackets where instead of, you know, if you earn $160,000 as a married couple, you were in the 25% bracket, now you're in the 22% bracket. Um, this is what we're seeing. Or or for a more common couple, um, you know, those making, you know, household income 54000 which is the national median, um, your income tax rate is 12%. Um, it was 15% before. So that's, you know, the, the most effect that people will see this this drop in their in their personal income taxes that as a share of the overall bill was tiny. I mean, what this bill really was was a huge permanent corporate tax cut, a uh, smaller but still very substantial tax cut for the ultra rich on the individual level, and then basically a tiny boost for middle class and and everyone else. So. Um, that's how the brackets impacted people, um, you know, outside of actuaries and, and accountants. I don't know that anyone paid that close attention to the actual shift in the brackets because, you know, you want to know what the effect is. Yes. And what the overall effect is that, you know, more than two-thirds of the benefits goes to the very rich. So, I mean, who's really benefiting here? That's that's what matters. Yeah, I got a call or a, a, a email in from a listener. When do tax cuts for us working stiffs show up on our tax returns? And he goes on, or she, I thought the standard deduction was doubled. Tell us about that standard deduction. It sounds like, I mean, going for the average income family to go from 15% tax rate to 12%, that's a little bit of a benefit. And what about the standard deduction? 
Yeah, I mean, the standard deduction did go up. I mean, that's that's uh, going to affect folks' lives. Uh, it impacts who's going to uh, itemize their taxes. Currently, most people, you pretty much only itemize your taxes if you own a house or if you have something um, particularly complicated about your taxes. For most people who don't own a house, they have a standard deduction. It did go up. That makes your tax rate go overall good down. Um, again, I... I I should not be giving uh, tax advice to folks over the radio. I shouldn't stress that I'm not an accountant. You should talk to a yes, yes. tax professional about your own personal taxes and, and, and how to, to most effectively go about it. What, what I do think is interesting, though, is that, you know, for most non-wealthy folks, I mean, this is going to be a small impact. And, you know, to say, like, oh, it's a small impact, there's been this debate for a while that, like, oh, well, what, a, you know, East Coast elites are, are shunning the uh, the extra couple of grand that's going to make the difference to Heartland America. This is like a, uh-huh. a narrative you hear in yes. conservative radio pretty regularly. Uh-huh. And, and what I would point out is that, you know, the biggest uh, boost to, to this bill, to, to how the, the Trump tax cuts were, were laid out, is that it's a delayed effect over a number of years, not just months, not just weeks, but years. And what that means is that what we're currently seeing is a little bit of a carrot, you know, a little bit of your tax rates cuts, mm. your tax rate will go down. The stick isn't going to come until they cut all of the public programs that people depend on. You know, half the babies born in this country receive uh, some form of subsidy from the Women, Infant, and Children program, WIC. Um, you know, the, the initial Trump budget wanted to eliminate WIC. Mm. The most recent budget did not do that. You know, that's that's a win. However, with the $1.5 trillion deficit introduced by these tax cuts, it's a matter of time before they come for WIC. And they come for, you know, those of us living in the Northeast, the low-income heating uh, and energy assistance program, LIHEAP. I mean, every single Republican budget has proposed eliminating LIHEAP. I mean, this is what we've seen over and over and over. They didn't, again, not successful this time, but it's it's a matter of time before they come back for that. Um, You know, these are the kind of programs that, are the difference between, you know, folks getting by and folks not getting by. It's, it's you know, when you talk about home heating assistance, that can be life or death for all their families yes. who, who can't afford to keep their, their house heated and, you know, die in their own homes. These are stories that we hear about living up in the North Country. So, I mean, these this is exactly why it's so treacherous to, to have such a, a a bill like this because, you know, okay, you know, some people might be like, great, I get a few extra bucks, other people get rich, but what do I care about them? Right. Life goes on. It's it's going to be a while before they come back for, you know, the massive budget cuts that they've been threatening this entire time. And that's why it, it's so uh, exhausting for folks to follow this process, because, <laughs> you know, y- you want the public to be on your side. The public did not want these tax cuts they gave them to them anyways. Uh, public does not want to cut life or food stamps for that matter, the SNAP program. And yet the you know Agricultural Committee, which controls food stamps, today came out with a bill that would dramatically cut SNAP benefits or food stamps. So this is the kind of thing that, you know, it, it pays to be vigilant. It pays to, to continue yes. this dogged fight because, you know, you just want to curl up and, and not think about taxes. But yeah. this is the kind of stuff that affects whether or not we'll have you know, assistance for needy families, whether or not we'll have all these programs that that are life and death for millions of people. 
Yes, they are. Lyheap in particular. It always got me as a former state senator in New Hampshire. It's cold here. And low-income heating and uh, assistance program. To cut that, I, it just it amazes me how heartless that can be. But then again, that's the lower end of the income scale. Who cares about them? Well, some of us do. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with Josh Hoxie, who directs the Project on Opportunity and Taxation at the Institute for Policy Study. We're talking about the Trump tax law now. It's hard to uh, believe it really is a law. But uh, what, what about, I mean, there are some provisions that are there to help poor families. Uh, the lie heap is one. What about the child tax credit? How, what, what happens to that? And how much do things like that actually help? And child tax credit is incredibly important to to families who rely on that at, at the you know low income families. There's been efforts to expand it over the years. This you know expanded it a little bit. I mean, essentially the, these programs for low income people are all temporary. So what we're seeing is that you know the folks at the bottom who are who are going to see a slight uh, uptick in their take home pay as a result of these tax expenditure programs like the child tax credit. Those go away after a number of years. The tax cuts for profitable corporations, they're here permanently. So, I mean, I wouldn't get too attached to things that are that are positive about this bill because they're temporary. Um, and increasing, you know, making them permanent, all that does is increase the deficit caused by this bill from about $1.5 trillion to $2 trillion, which a trillion dollars is such a absurd number for anyone to follow. No, I know. It's nearly impossible. What it what it again, when you see numbers like two trillion dollars in cuts, what that means is down the road eliminating LIHEAP. I mean that's essentially what we're discussing. And what it really means is making the rich richer and the public sphere smaller. So again, it's mm. it's that all around. Well that's an interesting way to put it. What about medical deductions? Has has this aspect actually improved under the new tax law? Uh, again, <laughs> sort of more of the same. I mean, yes, there's a, there's a small improvement for how you can deduct your, your medical taxes. There's also uh, a big uptick in the, if anyone followed the state and local taxes, I mean, they severely capped how much you can deduct from your federal taxes with your state and local tax deduction, uh, also known as SALT. I mean, there's the, the bill was about 700 pages long. So what we're talking about is, is uh, dramatic changes across the the board to the tax code, um, and and folks should talk to their to their sure. own accountants and folks about how to do that for them personally. Okay. Um, again, the 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 increase for for things like child tax credit, medical tax credit, and these things are are pretty small by comparison to the overall bill. Uh huh. And what about the thing Republicans love to hate, the Affordable Care Act? the Obamacare. How has that affected? They've been gunning for that since the day it came out, since the victory was won. How does how has that affected under the new tax law? Is there a way yeah, to... Yeah, so this is actually kind of major. Um, the Affordable Care Act relies on a federal mandate that mandates health insurance um, for every you know man, woman, and child in the country. If you don't get health insurance, you have to pay a fee. It's the most controversial aspect of the uh, Affordable Care Act. And uh, also, the linchpin that makes the whole project program work, and that will go away as of 2019. So we still have a year before we see that, but essentially the mandate, the the fine goes away as a result of this bill. So how will that affect everybody being covered? 
What it basically means is young, healthy people have less of an incentive to buy private health insurance or public health insurance for that matter, and thus um, the the insurance pool becomes older and sicker and thus more Ooh, expensive. Um, and thus, again, makes it significantly harder and more expensive to insure. Um, and you're seeing across a lot of states and a lot of counties and states the number of insurers or people willing to take uh, health insurance uh, is dropping. The available insurers under the Affordable Care Act is dropping to one in a lot of places, threatening to go all the way to zero. Um, so it, it is a significant blow to the effectiveness of the Affordable Care Act. Interesting how tax policy can be used in so many ways to do such good things, bad things. What about, for example, and other other targets of the right wing, I can't call them conservative, National Institutes of Health, Medicaid, funding for the arts and humanities. How are these things affected? Yeah, I mean, so these are on the budget side of the spending side of it, not the revenue side of it. Right. The other stuff we've been talking about has been all on the revenue sure. side. The, the spending side comes from an omnibus budget, which is, you know, we've basically... I've uh, been witnessing this slow-motion train wreck of a budget <laughs> make its way through Congress. Um, what eventually made it to the president's desk was a major increase for war spending and a basically flat line ac- across the board. Everything else, we did not. We were sort of expecting major budget cuts across the board for all these, you know, public programs like National Institutes of Health. It didn't count. It didn't go that way. And what basically what it came down to was just passing a bill and. The, the major emphasis of that was military spending. And again, whenever we talk about budgets and things like you know public spending, I think most folks, me included, struggle to understand just how much of our budget goes to our military. And it's right. going up. So yeah. you know discretionary spending, military, is $727 billion a year, 61% of the of the discretionary spending budget each year, uh, the next biggest spending uh, uh, appropriation is veterans benefits at seven percent. So the biggest program we have is the military, sixty one percent. The second biggest is veterans benefits at seven percent, and it goes down from there. And that other share that has to include everything else is pretty much everything else you think government does. Uh, education, housing, health, transportation, foreign aid, energy, environment, science, you know, food and agriculture, pretty much everything when you think of government, that's that tiny portion of the of the pie chart that's not military. So did I hear you right? And I know this is, it seems intentionally kind of hard to figure, and they make it obscure as to what the military actually is, but according to your figuring, about 61% of the budget is for military? Of the discretionary budget. The discretionary yep. budget. Wow. It's it's, uh, it's sort of unfathomable how that can be the case. I mean, all these weapon systems and, you know, in a way it's a public works program creating jobs, but they create things that presumably just kind of sit there on the shelves and make a tremendous profit for the military contractors. Is it that... In terms of, of budgeting, I know this is a little bit off from, from taxation. 
how is it that is it just you know the perception oh you can't touch the military we need a super strong defense why is that never looked at and why you know public works jobs it seems to me you know to build real national national security you would spend money on actual jobs rebuilding our infrastructure our schools our roads our bridges our electric grid i i don't know what thoughts you may have about you know how sacrosanct military budget is and they're 61% of the spending that's just it's hard to imagine. Is it just that their yep. lobbyists are that good? What is the deal? Yeah, their lobbyists are that good. <laughs> uh, I mean, so my colleagues at the National Priorities Project, who are great, if folks never heard of them, check out the National Priorities Project. They break down the federal budget in a in a super easy to understand way. One of their graphics floating around the internet today uh, shows looks at the average taxpayer and what what does it look like if you took the the big, scary, daunting federal budget and broke it down just to the size of the average taxpayer. And the average taxpayer contributed $240 exclusively to Lockheed Martin, just one company wow. for an offense. Really? All of all of us, on average, spend 240 bucks each to Lockheed Martin. By comparison, the average taxpayer contributed $112 to children's nutrition programs, including school breakfast and lunch. Oh, sorry, twice as much. Uh, that's Yeah, so they spent $112 on child nutrition programs and $204 on Lockheed Martin specifically. Now, that that's something people can understand, and that's, that's pretty amazing. So we're all working for Lockheed Martin. Isn't that nice? I feel so good now. Happy to do what I can for Lockheed Martin. That is truly amazing, just those figures. People can understand that. Um, and as Justifer, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of my favorites, put it, taxes are the price we pay for civilization. Though taxes are, you know, pretty much people, oh, taxes, oh, bad thing. You know, it's just sort of this uh, Pavlovian response, taxes bad. What actual good do our federal taxes do for our communities? Yeah. Well, let me answer that, but let me first point out that, I mean, there is this negative connotation with taxes in the United States. It's worth noting that we are, despite everything you, you hear from our president, a very low-tax nation. And I'll say that again. The United States has a very low tax rate as a proportion of our economy. Uh, if you look at the most developed countries, the United States spends 26% of our GDP on taxes. That is... Uh, basically lower than all but four of the wealthy countries in the world. Um, the highest rate is Denmark at 45.9%, followed by France, Belgium, Sweden, uh, and it goes on from there. Um, of note, the countries that have high tax rates, again, Denmark, France, Belgium, I mean, Norway, Finland, th these countries all rank higher than the United States in terms of child welfare, in terms of overall happiness, in terms of social mobility, uh, in terms of the ability for folks to get ahead. I mean, they're happening in countries with high tax rates. People are happier, and people feel like they can do more than they can in the United States. So it's just worth noting as we, you know, uh, sort of, talk about taxes, that the United States does not have particularly high taxes. 
if we did have particularly high taxes, we might be among some of the happiest countries in the world who have really high taxes. Um, so I just think that that's something that we should always thinking about whenever we're thinking about you know the national tax rate. Yeah, it's so interesting to me how effective it's been that you know people used to you know hear the word socialist and and just immediately turn off their thinking. Nowadays, younger people, thank goodness, don't do that. Uh, you know, we're still technically a mixed economy, uh, and that you know taxes do help somewhat. They they do. I mean. How, but but people get this gut reaction, taxes, ooh, bad, taxes. It's just gone on and on and on like that for a while. But they do help our communities somewhat, don't they? I mean, our schools, uh, federal dollars, some of it goes back to, to our communities to do good things, yes. I mean, it's not all terrible A- stuff. Absolutely. And I mean, there's it's hard to, to walk this line where we're basically, where I'm basically saying, you know, uh, taxes are a good thing, and government is a good thing, and the things we spend money are good things, but a lot of things that we spend money on are bad things, right? It's like, uh, there's so much money going to the war and to defense and to military, but you should still support your taxes. And, and the way I see it, you know, we need tax dollars because we need a vibrant public sector, because the public sector can do things that the private sector is incapable of. Um, the private sector is essentially incapable of running a uh, public education system, a public housing system, a public uh, food assistance program. I mean, things things that the government does well. And the problem is that, as you pointed out, there's a lot of folks who are very wealthy and self-interested who have intentionally tried to uh, discredit and and destroy these public programs. I mean, LIHEAP is a good example of a public program that works particularly well. I mean, folks who are struggling to to pay their heating bill in the middle of winter should not be punished by freezing to death. I mean, that's just not a real civilized thing to do. However, in a country that eliminates uh, heating assistance programs, you're essentially saying if you can't afford your heating bill, you deserve to you know, freeze in the cold. If you can't afford your groceries or if you have to choose between your groceries and your pharmaceuticals, which is a, a struggle facing you know, tens of thousands of families that you know, Bernie Sanders talks about regularly. We read about this on inequality.org, this dynamic of such expensive health insurance, meanwhile, and, and health care costs, Meanwhile, you know, if you're in this position in the wealthiest country in the world, should you have to choose between getting your pharmaceuticals uh, needs filled or buying your groceries that week? And I think that that's where people have to, you know, strongly consider how their tax dollars are are being used. And you know, to to your point of like, how do we how do we do this? How do we get people, you know, to care about taxes, hate taxes? I mean. One way to think about it, and this is you know sort of a silly mind thing, but you know I read a piece a while ago from this business owner who said instead of thinking about her taxes on her on her QuickBooks uh, spreadsheet, she had America's share written there as the public share. You know, essentially she had taken her private share, the amount of profit that that she you know was due, and she had separated out the public share, the amount that she paid towards 
you know, roads and bridges and public transit and public safety and all the basic programs that your tax dollars pay for. And that helped her wrap her mind around paying taxes every year instead of, you know, cursing the, the April 15th right. year after year. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And, you know, as, as we all know, with any budget, taxes or tax laws are a statement of values, of our priorities. And people have been, most Americans have been programmed pretty effectively to think we don't have any power. We just don't have any power. There's nothing we can do about it. So we just give up. And that's been very, very effective. People believe that. But I think one of the great things about having a Trump presidency is people realize, hey, that's not true. We can unite, and a lot of people are coming out with regard to gun safety, so many different issues to say that, hey, you know what? We are not powerless. We are not powerless. What what can people do? How would you advise people? You know, it's it's sort of nebulous tax laws, like just chomping into that is not easy to do. What can the average person do when it comes to, hopefully, I mean, it's not going to happen this year. Uh, making ch- changes in laws takes time, takes diligence, takes persistence. What can people do to make our tax laws actually uh, serve the public good as was intended by America's founders? Well, I mean, there's a number of things people can do, ranging from concrete to, to abstract. I mean, concretely, I think it's important to, first of all, pay your taxes. Just just pay them. You know, there's a there's an operating deficit at the IRS of about $450 billion Whoa. between what's owed in taxes and what's paid in taxes. Oh, my. Um, wow. And, you know, we've seen this multi-decade assault on the Internal Revenue Service whose only job is to collect taxes, and they've been vilified in the public. However, like, I can't think of a more patriotic thing to do than to just pay your damn taxes um, and to support the Internal Revenue Service, which is a little bit of a controversial thing to say in 2018. I don't think it's particularly crazy to think that you know paying your taxes and supporting the Internal Revenue Service is, is a good thing to do if you believe in, if you have some national pride. You know, see these guys out yeah. here flying their flags on the 4th of July, but cursing the country on, on April 15th. It just doesn't seem right to me. Um, you know, more concretely, now is the time to think about political organizing and political activism. You know, the, the conservatives, the right wing, whatever you want to call them, the folks who have passed this are on their heels. They are at yes. their weakest point at the time when the public is not with them on this issue. This is something that there is an opening, and every single member of the House of Representatives is up for election That's right. come November. And now is the time to start thinking about primaries, start thinking about folks running for office and getting engaged. Because, you know, if you were disheartened and disillusioned when Trump first came to office, you know, I was right there with you. I basically stopped making political predictions back then. Mm. Now that we've seen a year of what the Trump administration will do and what it looks like, I mean, this is your chance to to respond. This is really the first chance you get um, to have an election after the the 2016 election, which is coming up in November of the 2018 you know, midterms. Yep. Uh, so that, those are two you know concrete things. And then one thing I, I, I hope listeners will consider, and this is something we write about regularly on inequality.org, and my colleague Chuck Collins has, has written books on this topic. And basically, one of the most effective things folks can do, which is a little bit more abstract, is tell true stories about be honest about money. And, and this is something we run into pretty regularly mm. where, um, you know, I'm at an age where a lot of my friends are, are buying houses. They're, they're starting to starting to see the, the 
economic class show itself for folks where, um, you know, the, the storytelling matters. The, the story, the myths around money matters. And what I mean is that, you know, folks go out and buy a house and, you know, you ask, oh, how'd you afford the down payment on, you know, this expensive house? I live in Boston, it's an expensive city to live. Um, how'd you afford it? And, you know, you hear these stories that are just so ridiculous of like, oh, you know, we worked hard, we saved up, you know, we drove for Uber, we uh, had a yard sale, so on and so forth. My parents gave me $50,000 and it's like, well, wait a second, how did you afford it? <laughs> and that, and that inherent advantage that, that you have, that folks have year after year of, of getting money from their parents. You know, again, what we're looking for here at AnyCloud.org is for folks to be honest about deservedness and about money. And what that does is, I think, a fairly radical restructuring of how we think about community and the economy and fairness in the sense that there's nothing wrong with taking money from your parents to buy a house. What's wrong is when you act like anyone could do that, what everyone could could basically uh, do what you did when they really can't. A lot of people rely on public programs because if you weren't born with a with a trust fund, you know, a first-time home buyer's bonus of $5,000 is the difference between buying being a homeowner and not being a homeowner. And when people like, you know, the president goes after and eliminates first-time home buyer programs, that essentially strips people of their ability to enter the wealth-building uh, escalator of home ownership. And instead, the folks who can buy a house are folks who can get, you know, down payment money from their parents. And, and this is a self-perpetuating myth. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's this abstract thing that people can do, which is it, it's very simple. Just be honest and tell true stories about privilege and money and inequality. Stories do work. And just quickly, websites. What what websites can you point people to? There's there's yours and a few others that you mentioned. Yeah, inequality.org is is uh, a useful resource. We have a newsletter you should check out. Uh, the Institute for Studies is a little bit more complex. It's ips-dc.org. And the third one is the National Priorities Project, which is one-stop shop for everything budget-related. All right. Sounds good. We are not powerless. We can do something about fairness, tax fairness. Thank you so much and uh, for being with us, Josh Hoxie, and uh, let's continue the good work together. Keep democracy alive. It's always a pleasure, Bert. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.